Well, hi everyone, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. My name is John, I'm the pastor at our Upland campus and also oversee our offsite campuses. If this is your first time with us, just to let you know, I'll share a few things that are going on right now in the church, then we'll worship together and Pastor Dan will lead us in a study of the book of Acts. When he's done teaching, he'll take your questions live on stage. And so right now we've been putting all of our updates, all of our news, um, video blogs daily from Pastor Dan, on our website, wallupdates.com. And so if you'd like to receive those daily blogs, if you'd like to get our great Empowered Kids content, if you'd like to get great stuff for your teenagers, find out everything that's happening at the church, head over to wallupdates.com. That's W-O-L-updates.com. And now, tonight's service, as I mentioned, is live and interactive. So as Pastor Dan teaches, you can submit any questions you have, either through the chat on the live stream or by emailing them to onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org. And Pastor Dan will answer those questions after he's done teaching as much as time allows. So give us your best questions. And so now before we begin into a time of worship, um, I wanna pray with you, but I have a passage that I wanted to read for you really quick. This is a familiar passage to a lot of us found in Philippians 4. Uh, Paul says, now dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Father, today we fix our eyes on you. There are so many things that are competing for our attention online, whether we're at home or wherever we're at. So many things that are trying to get in front of our eyes. And so today, right now in this moment, we fix our eyes on the things that are beautiful, that are noble, that are admirable, uh, that are praiseworthy, we fix our eyes, we fix our attention, we fix our hearts on you. I pray that all other distractions would go away and we would be the worshipers that you, you dream of, those who worship you in spirit and in truth. So Father, we give you this time. We thank you for your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you worship with us? Reckless love. 
No shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up. 
nothing can stop your love, God. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Surely, 
I'm so-
darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you 
Father, we come to you today and we just want to tell you, thank you, God, that you never leave us. You never forsake us. You're an ever-present help in the time of need. And Father, you've got our journey. Lord, right now I want to stop and just pray for people that are sick, struggling. Lord, as I looked through the prayer request today, I was staggered by the amount of illness, struggle physically. And so we pray healing over people right now, Father, that they would open up and receive, invite you to touch their bodies, their emotions, their hearts, God, where they're broken, fearful. Father, we pray for faith to rise up in the hearts of your people, that you would replace fear with faith and despair with hope and life would pour out from your throne. God, you promised in the time of need, Father, you would pour out your presence. So we cry out to you, Holy Spirit. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and pour out your presence on us tonight in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Well, good evening to you guys. Thank you. That was great. Thanks. That was great. That was great, 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 great. Good evening to you. Um, let's jump in here right away and uh, talk about just some housekeeping things we need to catch up on. I, I have been told by a number of people that we have filed a lawsuit against Riverside County, Water of Life has, so that was a bit um, interesting to me how gossip starts and rumors run and all of that. We're not in Riverside County, so I'm not quite sure why Water of Life would be suing Riverside County, but we're not suing anybody, actually, <laughs> so um, that is just a rumor. So I'm not sure how it started, but let's put it to rest tonight. Let's see, I wanna to talk to you about some great things that are happening at Water of Life and things that you're doing and our church is doing and people are doing. So let's talk about CityLink this week. CityLink um, packed uh, 2,460 bags of food. Can I say that again? 2,460 bags of food. That's an amazing thought, you know, that we can do that kind of work and care for that many people. 615 households, each of them got four bags of groceries. Um, I had 35 volunteers down there serving at various places and, and um, just want to thank all of you for coming out and serving. We served 579 individual people at CityLink and 975 households through other churches that we're donating food to, LifePoint Church, Shalom Ministries, Loveland, The Way, Heroes Church, Conduit of Grace, Pathways, and then uh, church in Santa Maria, actually, or Santa Maria Church. And so there's just a total of 1,590 households were served food this week by Water of Life. So I just want to cheer for you and say, way to go, way to go, way to go. Those are amazing statistics. So I also want to bring you up today on this COVID relief fund. I challenged some of you a few weeks ago to give up your stimulus money and and let's serve the poor together. And the response, frankly, has been overwhelming. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars have been given. In the last week, uh, we have given away over $100,000. So that's just, I mean, it's just incredible that we've been able to help five different churches in San Bernardino County, Riverside County, um, Fontana area, five different churches that couldn't pay their bills and haven't been able to pay their staff or their pastors or pay for a place to actually record their services for their church. They didn't have any means to do that. And so we've been able to help a bunch of different ministries. We've been able to help a couple of ministries in Uganda. 
actually got a video from Uganda this week and I thought it'd be worth playing. It's just a just very, very short little video. I wanna show it to you from Uganda so you can get an idea of how impacting your sacrifice is for people around the world. So let's watch that real quick. Hey, Water Life family. Hey, Pastor Dan, Christine Imelda from Entebbe, Uganda. We just wanna say thank you guys so much for, for your sacrifice and, um, and blessing these families um, with food. And, um, you know, the other day I was reading and a verse popped out that says, you know, do not withhold good to others when it's in your power to do so. And we just thank the Lord that he's blessed us with these finances, blessed us with these resources to, to be able to extend to these in-need families. Um, so again, we just want to thank you guys. Yeah, we're, we just want to appreciate you guys and we're very grateful and every family was blessed. We blessed over 200 families, 500 people around Omo, depending on how big or small the family is. Well, and we appreciate it. We love you guys. May God bless you. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Bye. Well, that's Chris Anunziato and his wife in Uganda. They're taking care of a lot of families on the ground in Uganda. We've been able to help them. We've helped a couple of ministries in, um, in Kenya and caring for individuals all over our, our own county, our own area. Um, so there's just been so much that's happened. I wanna show you a little video that's a bit traumatic. Some of you probably seen it, it was on CNN and it's been around, but it's a picture of the Cabrera slums and it's important for you to understand we have ministry in the Cabrera slums and when I saw this video, I immediately emailed into um, Kenya to Charles and Rose at Joy Springs School that we support, and I said, hey, talk to me, are you guys okay? And they said, yeah, actually, Pastor Dan, that riot happened um, outside the wall of our house. And I said, what? They said, yeah, it happened outside the wall of our house. It was right outside the wall of our house. So um, you can see the picture here. That is Joy Springs School. I took that picture in February when I was there visiting. And um, there's a couple of other photos. Let's see if we can show them real quick. There's some of the students that were singing for us and just, um, we've been able to help the students, the teachers. Uh, the teachers had no money to feed their families. We paid their salaries for this month and next month to try to help them so they could eat. Um, let me show you the video and you'll understand kind of how chaotic it is. These people live day to day. It's very difficult there. Um, so yeah, I, I think if you look at it and you feel frightened, I understand that. But the truth is, uh, I'm in this area. I was on that road a couple of months ago, and typically it's a very safe place. They were doing a food giveaway this day, and the people are starving. And so there was a riot that took place out here. And um, Charles and Rose, as they said, it was over their back fence that this all happened. So pretty scary. They certainly need prayer and want to invite you to pray for them. You can see the stack of food here and soap that they're giving away. And we've been buying soap for people and rice for people in Kenya and Uganda so they can wash their hands and stay free from the virus, all of those kinds of things. So a lot of pain around the world, friends, a lot of pain. But I just want to cheer for you because you've done so much to touch so many people around the world. So. It's quite amazing, and I'm just very grateful, very, very, very grateful for your hearts and your sacrifice to serve other people. So let's pray and we'll jump in the word. Father, we wanna to come to you right now. Say thank you, God, for a, a generous community of people that love the poor and the least and the less, and 
You said, we love those people that we've served it and done it unto you, so we pray that you would be honored and glorified in our sacrifice, in our giving, in our generosity, in our caring for the, the people at the bottom of the food chain right now that are really struggling. But then, Lord, we wanna be honest about our hearts, that we need to be fed your word, we need to be encouraged and built up, we need to get our eyes off of fear and onto faith, we need hope to rise up in us, Lord. So we pray, Holy Spirit, you would do that as we open your word now in the name of Jesus. And everybody said amen, amen, amen. Okay, last week we did chapters three and four in the book of Acts, and so we're gonna be in chapter five today. Um, I wanna tell you a little story or ask you a couple questions before we jump into chapter five. Those of you who have children, babies, infants, or grandchildren, um, I think you probably understand that uh, how, how precious a little life is like when a baby's born. We do these baby dedications up here and there's little babies all over the place and you look at babies and they're like, whoo, so fragile. You know, they're just tremendously fragile. And so I know we have four grandkids that are under four years of age and so we've watched them grow up and we watch the babies and we watch the monitors when we're at the house, when they're taking a nap, they're on a monitor and there's, all, there's so much caution and protection that we offer children when they're first born. And I think we would all agree with that. I think you all understand that need that humans, God intended for humans to be needy. And so he put us in a place where we would need each other. And that isn't unlike the picture that's shown in the book of Acts of the early church. There was a birthing that took place. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that when Jesus was resurrected, the Bible says he is the head of the church. And it was almost like a birthing, and those of you who've been in the room during a birthing, and those of you who've given birth to children, you understand when the crown of the head starts to come forth, and then you're like, oh my goodness, there's a person <laughs> coming out of there, and suddenly a baby pops out, and um, hopefully for you it was suddenly, and <laughs> it wasn't long, but it was suddenly. And the reality is, when that takes place, there's a birthing, but the birthing always starts with the head, and then the body. And the same picture is given in the book of Acts, is that the church was birthed in Acts chapter two after the head Jesus was resurrected. And then you've got this baby trying to grow. Now the next few chapters, what you're gonna see in chapters five, six, seven, eight, you're gonna see the battle to stay alive. That's actually the picture in the framework of a baby, an infant, a child, a very, very newborn church that the enemy understands this huge catastrophic mistake he's made by crucifying Christ and Christ has risen from the dead and then birthed his life into all these other people because he said when a seed goes in the ground, it will come forth and multiply itself and certainly that was happening. There was 3,000 and there was 5,000, there was 8,000, there was thousands of people in Jerusalem giving their lives to Christ. So the enemy was doing everything he could to destroy the church. Now we talked last week about um, some civil disobedience issues and how they stood up against the um, authorities, the Sadducees who brought them in, Peter and John, and tried them. But at the outcome of that was just the beginning of a persecution that was gonna uh, sweep through Jerusalem and through the little baby, infant, early church. And so the reality that was gonna take place in this picture that you're gonna see is the beginning of that. So chapter five, it gets hard. Chapter six, it gets worse. And chapter seven, you see the first person martyred and you start to see people dying. And then there was a sweeping through of a great, great, great persecution that took place ultimately. So you've gotta think like that as we read the text. So we left off last week in chapter four 
verse 35, 36, 37, you got your Bible, your iPad, your phone. It says in verse 36, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, Joseph, we don't ever think of this guy as named Joseph or Joe, Joseph, he was also called Barnabas. So we think about him as Barney, but we think of him as Barnabas. He was one of the apostles and his name translated means son of encouragement. And he owned a tract of land and he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we know this about Barnabas. He was a very, very generous guy. Now he was Paul's first um, mentor. He was the guy who poured his life into Paul. You can find that in, in um, throughout the book of Acts as it starts to unfold in chapters 12, 13, 14. And then you get up to chapter 15 and you see this split that Paul and Barnabas had over a guy named John Mark who was actually the cousin of Barnabas. We find out later, but um, John Mark had deserted them, I think in Acts chapter 13, on their first missionary journey around the world. John Mark was a young, young guy. He kind of lost his mind and walked away. <laughs> I think he was carrying their luggage is actually what he was doing on the missionary journey. He was there just to help. He didn't like it, missed his mom, whatever. I'm not sure what happened. He went home. And when he went home, that really blew Paul up. So what happened was, um, there was a conflict between Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas actually sided with uh, John Mark and Paul, and he split. And then later, uh, Paul then traveled with Silas and did his other missionary journeys with Silas. And later, uh, Paul called back to John Mark and said, you know, please send John Mark to me when he was in prison. Uh, he's been a faithful brother to me. So we know there was a reconciliation of this. There was a healing. So. Barnabas was from the tribe of Levite, he was a priest. And so one of the things that you're gonna see as we move through chapter six, I think is verse seven, is that a lot of priests started getting saved and coming to Christ. They were giving their hearts to Jesus. I have to think uh, Barnabas was part of that because he was from the tribe of Levi and he was also a priest. And so we know this, that he had an influence on those people. And likely he went to school with Paul and was a schoolmate of Paul in Gamaliel's school of training for the Pharisees. And so there was a whole bunch of things happening here that were unfolding with this guy named Barnabas. But more than anything, he was a contrast to the next part of the story that Luke's gonna unfold. So remember this, there's years going by here as we move into chapter seven and eight, there's five, six, seven years going by. And so all, all that Luke is doing is the high points, the mountaintops, if you would, or the great deep valleys like we're gonna read right now. He was only putting in some of what was taking place, not everything. So you gotta keep that in mind as we read. So let's read chapter five, the first 11 verses, and they're very difficult, so hang on to your hat. We'll jump in there. I asked somebody what they think we should do with these verses, and they said, nothing, just skip them and keep going. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, that would be nice, but we can't do that if we're gonna go verse to verse through the Bible, so let's do this. It says, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, wasn't it yours? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You could do whatever you wanna do with the money, it was yours. Why is it then that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
And that's a very important verse. Just remember, he was referencing the Holy Spirit. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then there's this gigantic statement made by Peter that you have lied to God, which helps us understand the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all part of the Godhead. Uh, our, our, our Father in heaven is made up of three different identities. We can't get into all that right now. I touched that a bit last week, but the reality is the Holy Spirit is clearly defined as God here. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And why did you lie? You have not lied to men, but to God. In verse five it says, and when he heard these things, Ananias fell down oh, uh, and he breathed his last and a great fear came over all that heard about it. I, I guess so. Okay, then the young men got up and covered him up and carried him out and they buried him. Verse seven, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in with no knowledge of what had happened to her husband. And Peter responded and said, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came out and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard about these things. I guess so. So, where do you go with that? Well, clearly, uh, Luke could have left this story out of the Bible. There's no question about that, and we would have never known what took place. So there's certainly, there's a point in why he put it in. Um, there's no question, some people uh, really take issue with Peter, with his ethics, his morality here, his tone of voice, but we really don't know. It's, this is a bit like an email, you can read what Peter said, but you can't know the feelings behind how he said it. Uh, he may have been very, very, very compassionate and kind and heartbroken when he was speaking to Ananias and Sapphira, knowing that something tragic was gonna take place with them, a judgment was gonna fall on them. We don't know that. It's easy to read through the text just like you read through an email and find no emotion whatsoever there. So I wanna caution you not to do that. The reality here is, it does appear on the surface that Jesus was even more compassionate with Judas than Peter was with Ananias and Sapphira, and so I get that. But there's a real point to this being in the Bible, so let's talk about that. First off, the whole thing was voluntary. You gotta get that. The first five verses clarify that deeply and clearly. It says you sold a piece of property, you, came back, you, you held back, kept back some of the price for yourself with your wife's full knowledge, and brought a portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. So the issue wasn't about giving here. That isn't the issue. It wasn't about the, the money, it was about the lying, the hypocrisy. They made it look like they were as generous as Barnabas in chapter four, and they weren't. So apparently they were looking for some kudos, they were looking for something um, that they, they really shouldn't have been after. And it says in verse three and four, that you know, you've lied to God, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and a great fear had shaken the church. Now, you gotta get this. The lying part is the crucial part of this whole text. Um, if you go into the book of Joshua, I think it's chapter seven, when they fought the battle of Jericho, there was a guy named Achan, and Achan ended up really aching over what he did. It was bad, so he stole some stuff. And this picture is a, 
a reflection of that story. Most people that study this, most um, scholars who study this, they'll say, look, there's no question that Luke was trying to make uh, a, a defining statement just as was made with Jericho. When the people of Israel had come out of, the, um, out of bondage and out of the desert and into the promised land, there was this first battle that took place at a town called Jericho. God had told them, everything that comes out of Jericho belongs to me. It is all the first fruits. And those of you who've been with us a long time, I've taught for many, many different times about first fruits and putting God first and all of what that means and that the firstborn belong to him and all of what that means. So I'm not gonna do that tonight. But suffice to say that that was the picture in Jericho. Everything in Jericho belonged to God Achan stole some of what was uh, he found in Jericho when he got there, hid it in his tent, and God revealed that to him, and then Achan was judged and killed for doing that. <clears throat> when we read this story about Ananias and Sapphira, there's no question that there's a judgment obviously happening that's outward. Now, a lot of you would say this, you would look at this and go, this is immoral, this is wrong, I've heard people say that, but let's stop right there and just talk for a minute. The reality is the Bible's very clear about the wages of sin is death. So I, I wanna say that again to you. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, it kills part of us no matter what. That is very clearly outlined in the Bible. Now, is that, am I def defending these people being killed or dying? Listen, I, I can't go there. I, the reality is God's the one who took their life, not me. And some of you would be, like, wow, how could this happen? And I understand your thoughts about that, but you've gotta understand a couple of things. The context here is very, very important. It says a great fear came over the church, and there was a reason for that, because the enemy was attacking this baby, and God was defending it. And because it was a baby, it was a tiny, helpless, if you would, infant at that point, and needed to be defended, that God defended them. The truth was, as the church grew and got stronger, God didn't defend. I mean, the truth is, if, if God was gonna kill everybody that had lied to him about something, uh, there wouldn't be anybody at Water of Life. We would pretty much all of us be gone. And so that makes this story even more difficult because you look at Ananias and Sapphira and you go, what happened? Well, what happened was they had defied God and partnered without knowing it opened the door to hell to come into the church. And so God obviously slammed the door shut very quick and very immediate. And it says in verse 11, a great fear or awe came over the church. They were in shock. But it's also important that you understand in verse 14, read down a little bit further. Um, let me, I'll, I'll just pick up in verse 12 and read it. It says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. And this is an important picture because they were still going to the temple to worship. This is the outer court of the temple. So they're still going to the temple for worship. They were still seeing themselves as Jewish people who had opened up to Jesus. And so they were worshiping on a regular basis in the temple. They were in the temple preaching Jesus, and it says that people were getting healed there. But none of the rest dared to associate with them However, the people held them in high esteem. So literally, the picture you get here is, there was a lot of people who were maybe seekers or lookers, and they're like, we're not going there because we understand what could happen if we went there, and it kind of freaked us out. But 
there was a whole bunch of other people, as you read on, that were attracted and did come. It says in verse 13, none of the rest dared associate with him. However, people held him in high esteem. And verse 14 says, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Multitudes were coming to Christ. So, so, so please get this picture. Though this was a very difficult circumstance, people understood that the Lord was in the middle of it and they embraced that. Now, what the picture that you get here is really, look, if you're not in, don't come here, but if you're all in, come on in. That's really the picture that you get. Now, if you're struggling with Ananias and Sapphira, let's talk about that and walk back through that a little bit. Clearly, in the Bible, there are times when God takes people's lives, so I need to say that to you. Uh, God gave us life, and God has the freedom whenever he wants to take it back. So if you have a Bible, an iPad, a phone, I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. And I want to read some verses to you for those of you who are not familiar with the whole concept of people, uh, the Bible says, being asleep or dying because of sin, it's there. So it says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 5, for I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged the one who has committed this as though I were present. So backstory here, just so you would understand, there was a guy sleeping with his stepmom. And so the people had embraced this in the church. Again, it was an attack against the church. And, and Paul said, listen, this cannot happen in the church. This, cannot, uh, this is, isn't gonna be tolerated. And so Paul said, um, I've already judged this person, even though I'm not there. I, I know that he has sinned against the Lord. And in the name, he says in verse four, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I am with you, uh, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is very, very problematic text. And some of you might be going, wow, you're already in a hole. Why are you digging it deeper? Because it's a very, very important concept. The concept is this, that there is a God and he loves people, he's crazy about people, but there's also judgment. So the Bible talks about judgment and mercy, that God is a God of both. And without judgment, friends, there's no justice. You gotta think like that. We love justice, we want things, the scales to be level and correct, but we hate the thought of God judging people and then ultimately punishing them. But the picture that Paul puts here is of a believer that is sinning against God and that it would be better for that person's flesh to die so that their spirit could be in eternity and live than for them to go on sinning against the Lord. And that is the picture. Now, if you drop down into verse nine, Paul says this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And he's trying to clarify what he was talking about in the church. He said, I didn't mean to not associate with immoral people in the world or with covetous or swindlers or idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. So he's saying, no, 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 you gotta understand there's a really clear parameter here. Christians and non-Christians, believers and non-believers, people in the church and people not in the church. There's a very defining picture here, as there was in Acts chapter five. Very defining picture of the church itself. And so the, the discipline, if you would, of the Lord is inside the church. And the Bible says that judgment starts in the church, not outside the church, but in the church, and that's the picture here. 
So Paul said, listen, when I was telling you not to associate with immoral people, I'm talking about people that are in your church. They should not be there if they're not living the way that they ought to be living. And frankly, if you're out there right now having an affair, doing things you shouldn't be doing, this ought to strike some fear in your heart. It really should. And that's the point of the whole thing, that you would realize that there is a God, it's not you, and the Lord wants you to wake up to the reality that he can bring life to you, but sinning against the Lord brings death to you. So here's where Paul goes. <clears throat> Excuse me, he says, um, I, in, I was encouraging you not to, to, to hang out with these people, but I'm not talking about people in the world. In verse 11 he says, actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother or sister if that person's an immoral person or covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not to even eat with them, but to put them outside of the church and then say, listen, um, you need to deal with your sin and we wanna love you. And that's actually what happened to this guy in this story in 1 Corinthians is he repented because they did take some steps with him of discipline and restoration and because they did deal with his issue, he turned back to the Lord and Paul immediately went back and said, now that he's turned back to the Lord, embrace the guy, embrace the guy, embrace the guy. So he says this at verse 12. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders, people in the world? Basically, he just said this. If you're in the world, you're gonna act and live like you're in the world. Don't get freaked out because non-believers act like non-believers. That shouldn't bother anybody, really. That's just reality. And then he goes on and he says this. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not know those... Those who judge, or those who are within the church are the ones that we're talking about. But those who are outside, God judges those. So remove the wicked man from yourselves. So, so from among yourselves. So you've got to get this picture that he's saying there will be times that God will actually take the life of a believer in order to seal their destiny into the kingdom of God. Now, you might be sitting there going, that's crazy. Well, I wanna explain something to you. I've actually seen this happen. Um, some of you might remember this. Years ago, in the early 90s, there was a pastor in Ontario who was a youth pastor at a pretty prominent church in Ontario and found out, people found out he had been molesting kids. And um, when that came out, it was a huge tragedy. It made the front page of the Daily Bulletin paper. It was just devastating. And long and short of it was, this guy was, uh, was arrested. He was put in jail. He was in his 30s at the time. And um, I knew his wife. She ended up being part of our fellowship at Water of Life. I ended up doing her wedding when she remarried another man because what happened was, when she went to her husband and he was repentant and wept over what he had done, and cried out to God for healing for all the lives that he had devastated. And then she said, you know, that was, a, that was the best thing that could happen, but I knew that he had violated our relationship so deeply I couldn't ever be there again. And that night, he went to sleep, and when they came to his cell the next morning, he was dead. Now you might say, well, that was a coincidence. I don't. I don't think it was a coincidence at all. She didn't think it was a coincidence at all. It was very clearly the Lord took his life and sealed him into eternity and took him off the planet. There's no question. There's another story I could tell you. The same thing that I knew happened to a person in Northern California who was beating his wife because she was reading the Bible and he locked her in a room and then he went out one day to chop down a tree 
and the tree fell on him, but only the very, very, very tip top of the tree, a branch that was about this long, pierced right through his heart and killed him. Uh, he had repented when that happened. There was a bunch of backstory to all of that as well, very similar to this story. Friends, I'm just trying to say this to you. I'm certain that these things take place. I'm positive that there are times when God sweeps people off the planet and seals them into eternity, and that's the picture you have here. Very difficult, very, very difficult picture. So, I'm gonna jump on into the rest of the story because I do think that the rest of the story is really important. What I wanna leave you with is just some thoughts. Let's talk about lying. Clearly, these people lied. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and lying partners you with Satan. So those of you who have a struggle with lying, you need to deal with that because it opens the door to hell at a level that many other things don't. The Bible says that Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. Jesus said in John 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in Satan. When he lies, he speaks his own native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, uh, when, our, when my kids were growing up, I used to look at them when they were lying, and I'd say, listen, you need to be really careful because lying partners you with hell. It's very dark and it's very dangerous, and you need to be careful of it. Um, so what, this isn't just a demonstration of justice about lying, but it is a protection and a statement about how lying partners us with hell and how the bride of Christ has got to be protected by the Father, and that is really what was happening in this story. So... Let's jump down into verse 12, verse 13, verse 14, 15, and see, you can see that there was some worship going on, there was people coming to Christ, there was some great things happening back here in Acts chapter five. There's some powerful responses. People, even though they had seen this, these miraculous things happen and they were afraid, they still wanted to know Jesus. So it says that at the portico, many, many people were getting healed. It says in verse 15, there was such an extent that they even carried the sick onto the streets and laid them on cots and pallets <clears throat> so that Peter, when he came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, demon, they were demonized, and they were being healed. So there was a supernatural outpouring, friends. There was a revival feeling here. There was a baby church with a huge outpouring of the Spirit, signs of wonders happening, healings taking place, faith being triggered, and people surrendering to Jesus. So um, there, there was just a really important, I mean, one of the things that's happening here when people start laying people out in front for healing, and I've seen this happen, I, I think I've told you stories about when I went to see Catherine Coleman and there were people were lined up around the block um, wanting to get in to see Catherine Coleman. I, I, I was so far out of my zone, I couldn't deal with it at the time. But the truth was, is there was people that got healed. I just didn't like the style of it, and God had to work that through my heart for a long time. But the reality was, God heals in very mysterious and wild ways that we don't often understand. And when you start to see sick people getting well, when they've exhausted their resources with doctors, then you see this desperation that is actually manifest here in this early church picture on the porticos of the temple where people were being laid in the streets and laid all over so that they could get healed. So it's a crazy picture, it's a great picture, but it says in, in verse 17, this created more tension. The high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that was a sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them back into jail. 
But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and took them out and said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered in the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So you got this crazy picture, hold on, I mean, this crazy picture of people getting healed, people getting saved. If you remember and you're with us the last couple of weeks, you know that they had already brought them in once and warned them not, Peter and John, and warned them not to do this. Don't preach Jesus. Don't heal anybody. The name of Jesus is outlawed in Jerusalem. You may not go here. And so they go there anyway. People are getting healed. They're totally blown up. Now at this point, they're starting to say, okay, we have a huge disaster on our hands. We thought we killed this guy, and now this is just exploding in our midst. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. People are getting delivered. And by the way, friends, that all should still be happening today. If we really believe that the Spirit of God is alive, people should be getting healed, getting restored, and getting delivered. All of that to say, with the signs and wonders came this huge outpouring of the Spirit and this whole enfolding of new people into the church, but it triggered some jealousy, some anger, some envy, and, and really they arrested the apostles, okay, they come back, and they're gonna arrest these guys again. But when they arrest them, then supernaturally, they're released from, from prison. And as soon as they're released from prison, what happens? The, they're, they're told to go back into the temple and preach again. Now, in order to understand the fullness of this, how much audacity is in all of this, and how much courage these guys are displaying, you gotta remember, these are the same people that, that crucified Christ. And just, these guys knew that. And they were the ones who ran and ran and ran, but now, instead of running from the battle, they're running to the battle. They're instead of running from the conflict, they're running to the conflict because they know that God has commissioned them, called them, and told them to go. It was startling, it was startling. Uh, they, they didn't say, is it safe to preach, but is it what God wants me to do? And that was the answer, obviously, was yes. And so they, they went and they did that. You know, I, I, a few years ago, was in India, and I had the opportunity when I was in India to preach to a room full of probably two to 300 pastors. And when I, they started to gather, we were traveling around the country of India and I was preaching night and day all over the place. And when, when we gathered, they were, uh, the, the leader who was putting this meeting together, I said, explain to me what you wanna do here, what's your goal, what do you want me to preach about? He goes, I want you to preach about um, persecution. I go, really? He goes, yeah, everybody in the room that you're gonna preach to this day will have been persecuted. They've either been beaten or jailed or both. And I said, everybody in the room, and he goes, every single person in the room will have been persecuted for their faith. And I thought to myself, everybody in the room but me? You know, and you want me to teach these guys? I need to get out in the crowd and let them speak. This was such a mind-boggling moment for me to look at these men and women who had traveled on buses, on carts, on trains. They had come overnight. They had come for days. Some of them had traveled two or three days. They didn't even have the money to get home. I remember I had brought some money, again, because of your generosity, and I was able to pay for people to get on a train to go home. They came with no way to go home, which is just crazy, because they were so hungry to hear about Jesus, and they were so persecuted in India that they were looking, starving for help. And so what happened in the picture here, what happened was uh, I'm sitting there preaching to them, trying to encourage them and strengthen them, 
And as soon as we were done that night, they got up and started to leave. And I said, where, where are they staying tonight? And he goes, oh, they're not staying the night. They travel home tonight, it's Saturday night, and they will, some of them travel all night long so they can preach to their own churches or their house churches and their congregations tomorrow morning. I said, hold, hold it. You mean they just traveled all the way here? They got here for a meeting that lasted for two or three hours, you fed them dinner, and now they're gonna get back on a train and travel all night long and then go home and, and preach to their people. He said, exactly. And some of them don't have any way to get home and that was whenever we were able to give them money to get home. I'll tell you, that's a game changer, friends. That changes your whole perspective of life and ministry and everything. When you see people that have really been persecuted and still have the courage to get back up and say, look, I'm all in for Jesus. I'm going, there's nowhere else to go. I'm not gonna back down. If they take my life, they take my family's life, I'm all in. That's the picture that you have here. So these guys go back out and they preach. And it says in verse 21, the high priestly associates um, called the council together the next day. <clears throat> they sent orders to the prison to bring these guys out. But the officers who came did not find them in prison. And when they returned, they reported back. We said, we went, and there were still guards at the door. <laughs> but when they opened up the door, there was nobody there. This is a great picture. I think God must laugh when he does stuff like this. It says, now when the captain of the temple of the guard, the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about as what had come of these guys. Where did they go? But someone came in and reported to them, listen, these guys are back in the temple preaching again. This must have really blown them up. But when the, when the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people early in the morning, get that part, that as soon as they got out, they probably went home for the night. It was, must have been in the nighttime that they got out. And then they were early in the morning back in the temple, very first thing, and the captain went along with officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. The officers must have gone in. These are the same guys that arrested him before. You gotta think like that. And, and they must have gone in at this time and said, look at, could you just please come with us? You know, we, we're not gonna force you to come because they were afraid the people would stone them because they were so enthralled by what the Spirit of God was doing. So they politely asked these guys, look, could you come to, to trial this morning? We need to try you because you're breaking the law. Could you please come to trial? And obviously, the apostles said, yeah, we're good. We have, have no problem doing that. And so it says in verse 27, they brought them and they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them. And he said, we gave you strict orders not to do this. Don't you, can't you hear, you know, what's up with you guys? And yet you filled Jerusalem with the teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, this is really important because if you remember, back in Matthew 27, 24, they literally said when, when Pilate was wanting to release Jesus and they said, no, release Barabbas, and Pilate said, then I'm gonna wash my hands of this and his blood is on you. And they chanted, it says in Matthew 27, 20, uh, 24, 5, and 6, that they chanted, not just on us, but on our children and our children's children. And we have to, and literally these guys just said, listen, we're gonna obey God, we're gonna do what we have to do, even if you don't like it, but these guys are saying, you're bringing his blood to bear on us. Well, the truth is, Jesus' blood has borne onto the Jewish race for centuries now, and it's been very, very painful. If, as you look at this, so what happens is they're, they're standing in there and the Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than you guys. We're not gonna do what you said. 
The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You've got to understand the picture here is very clear, very important. They just kept coming back to Jesus, coming back to Jesus, coming back to Jesus, and saying, look, Jesus is the issue here, and it's all about him. It's always about Jesus. He's got to be the center of it all. And they just made this point over and over and over. They're preaching the gospel in this courtroom. It's the second time they've done it. It happens again and again and again and again until finally they start to kill these guys. So what, what happens is he says, literally, you know, you put him on the cross, but our father raised him up. It says in verse 32, we are witnesses of all these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, they were really must have at this point been viciously blown up because it says they wanted to kill them. They were cut to the quick and it, they, intend, they intended to kill them. They were gonna crucify these guys or stone them just like they had Jesus. So they had pretty much just signed their death warrant. That is such a crazy picture. But they had gone in there so bold that they had signed their death warrant and said, look it, we're not gonna back down go ahead and kill us, do what you did to Jesus. They shouldn't have been surprised at all. They wouldn't have been surprised at all if they would have been killed for what they were saying. But something happens here that is very supernatural. It has to do with God rescuing the church again. And that is exactly what he did here. He rescued some of the key leaders from being killed. It says in verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to the men uh, to put the men outside for a short time. So you gotta understand who Gamaliel is. Gamaliel is a very, very prominent and powerful uh, rabbi, teacher, leader. He was a preeminent teacher of his day in Jerusalem. So all the records we have about Gamaliel is that he was a very powerful person. He was, in fact, you may remember his name, he was the Apostle Paul's, or Saul, uh, he was his rabbi. He was, Paul was in the school of Gamaliel. It says in Acts 22, verse three, I am a Jew born into Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So Gamaliel was a very famous, very powerful, and, and very, very, very strategic person in this story. He was known as an old and wise Pharisee and a great, great teacher. So what does he do? Watch this, this is so important that God used him as a vessel to protect the church. He said to the men of Israel, take care of what you'd purpose to do with these guys. For some time ago, uh, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined with him, but he was killed and all of his followers were dispersed and they came to nothing. After this, another guy named Judas, Thutis and Judas, this other guy named Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. That would have been Joseph and Mary, the days of the census. And he drew away some people after him, but he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered around. It came of nothing. Verse 38, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these guys, leave them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will come to nothing. It will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. Now this is a just brilliant statement that he makes, but coming from the mouth of a Pharisee. 
a strategic leader who is a super strong Jew and a leader of the Jews. And yet he's telling them, leave these guys alone. Don't touch them. And that, that was impossible at the moment. You've got to understand how strategic this was that God put his hand on Gamaliel. Gamaliel had this kind of authority to stand up and stand against the tide, stand against the, the high priest. Understand, it was the high priest who was cut to the quick. It was the high priest, uh, Ananias and, and Caiaphas, those two that were in this meeting and had put Jesus to death, and they were the ones that wanted to kill these guys. But Gamaliel overrode them. And this is so important because it's how God works today. It seems sometimes like the leaders around you, the people over you at work, that they're overmatched, they can't do it, and then suddenly God will bring somebody above them more authoritative than them, and there'll be a breakthrough. And you gotta believe that, because this guy was not a believer, but he was a vessel used by God. And God will use vessels, friends. He'll use his people to reach other people. So you've gotta see that was Gamaliel. He was a vessel that God used to protect these guys. And he won the day. He persuaded everybody, including the high priest, to back down. And so it says in verse 40, they took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them. <laughs> they just kind of fly right over that. Oh, okay, hold it. They bound them and they whipped them 39 times, likely. So I, 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 this is as hard to get your, your, your the understanding, the magnitude of the understanding, get your head to figure out what really happened here because they flogged them and they told them, do not speak the name of Jesus again. Can't you hear us? <laughs> and then they released him. And so in verse 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So their, their whole flogging, their whole warning went for nothing. And the truth was, it was such a strategic moment for this little baby infant church, just like the beginning of the chapter was with Ananias and Sapphira. It was so strategic that you're gonna see in chapter six, there was another attack by the enemy to try to destroy the leadership of the church and God rescued them again. And then finally in chapter seven, you see Stephen get martyred and killed and then the persecution breaks out. But by that time, there's enough stability in the church for the church to flourish under persecution. So these guys, though, amazingly, get flogged and go on their way rejoicing. And that, friends, ends our study for today. <laughs> so I'm gonna invite Pastor John to come on up here and see if he's got some questions that you have. I know you're all gonna want me to answer what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and I just, um, not sure I'm gonna be able to do all of that in the next few minutes that we have together, but let's see where we can go. Are you there, John? Are you ready? Do you have questions? I'm ready, yeah. And we do have questions about Ananias and Sapphira. That is a crazy story and so different from what we normally see from the Lord and, and how we think about the church. So obviously there's some people who have some questions about that. Um, so this first one is about that passage that you referenced in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay. Lee says, so if our fellow believers continue to live immoral, we should not be around them. 
can you define this more and what immoral is? The reason I ask, and I'm glad that you're forwarding my question, is that how else can we show love to them if we're no longer to be around them? I know a verse that says God is love, um, and to love those, uh, bless those who curse you, and so on. What if you do, if it's someone even in your own household, um, and that you have, you have this, this, uh, this directive toward? Okay, so we're talking about somebody who's immoral, right? and they're a believer, at least you think they're a believer. Yeah. They've shown fruit of being a believer, and that's so important that you understand that, because so I, I believe in our culture today, part of the problem here is, is that we call people Christians that are not Christians. Right. That's really important to say. Uh, you gotta go through the parable of the sower, understand the parable of the sower, read it closely, understand that a lot of people pop up, and then they burn off, and they were never saved. So the first thing you've got to determine is there been fruit in a person's life, have they really uh, been repentant, have they really walked with God, and then have they walked away? So you've got two pictures. You've got the picture in the Bible of the, um, the prodigal son, and he walks away from God, and he is immoral. So he goes out and he does what immoral people do, he spends his father's money, and he gets drunk, and he, you know, he's with people, women, and doing all kinds of things he should have been doing. So he, he's out there, but he's not in his home with his father, because his father wouldn't allow that to happen in his home. He would have put him out of his home if he was doing that. He would have said, you can't do this and be in my house. There's no question in that culture that would have happened, and it probably should still happen in this culture. Yeah. Um, and so what the picture was that he had taken his father's money, he had left, but his father longed for him to repent and come home. And as soon as he did, he threw his arms around him and he had a party. So when we use terms like, and this is so important, this is a teaching I really wanna get to in the next year, what does love look like? Because we use the word, we're supposed to love people, but you've gotta define love by Jesus, and you define love by how did Jesus love you and how does Jesus love people? because Jesus doesn't love people without disciplining them. Yeah. That's so clear in the Bible that he rebuked Peter, he rebuked the apostles. Jesus disciplines us for our own good. And the Bible's very clear about that. So, so what we tend to think in our culture is if you love somebody, you would never discipline them. Right. You would never take issue with anything they do wrong. But that is not a biblical picture. A biblical picture is if you really do love somebody, then you will take issue with things that they're doing wrong. But you'll do it kindly and thoughtfully. That's why sometimes I say, listen, if you wanna disagree with me, no problem, disagree with me, just be nice. And that's the picture, Jesus was, that's what love really looks like. Love is sometimes difficult, and, and we call it, you know, in different classes or books that have been written, tough love, you know, take your kid and put their stuff on the front porch and say you're not gonna live here and do drugs anymore, I'm not gonna fund your habits any longer, that kind of a thing. That's, we call that tough love. But clearly in the Bible, um, there, there's times when God disciplines his children because he loves us. Yeah. And he does it, he reproves us because he loves us. And we don't do very well with that as a culture in our Christian worldview. We don't add that portion in very quickly or very often. So I think, what do you do with that? I think you gotta deal with each case individually. I don't know your case particularly. I don't know what's going on in your situation, so it'd be very difficult for me to, to identify and, and address your case particularly. I would say this, you need to get into the Bible and read about um, God, how he disciplines and reproves us, how he 
There are times when we're actually told in Matthew 18 that if a person sins against the Lord, then they need to be put out of the church, which means that you break fellowship with them, but not before you go to them and go to them and go to them and go to them and try to convince them that they have um, broken God's heart. And so, and I've unfortunately over the years had to do this many times with families or people, particularly men that have had affairs and left their wives for other women and, and they were in the church as a leader or something, you have to go and confront them. And then after you confront them, you bring witnesses, you confront them, and then you finally sit down with their family and the people around them and you tell them, um, I'm not gonna fellowship with these people anymore, with your husband yeah. anymore, because he is not repentant and he has no desire to reconcile with God. At that point, you release him, and, and you realize this, that the Lord hasn't released him, that the, you still pray for them, and the Holy Spirit can still do his work in them. That's a super long answer, but a very difficult question, so. Well, I think, it's, I think we've seen our culture impact our thinking in this to yeah. such a great degree that you literally, not only can you not, um, you can't do something like what you're talking about, which is biblical, but even, like you said, disagreeing with someone yeah. is considered hate. You know. We would think that's not loving, but Jesus disagreed right. with a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he just was nice when he did it. He was very kind and thoughtful when he did it. Um, Carr says, you said during Bible study to, that the Lord can punish or show mercy to sinners. Why are there people out there that lie on a daily basis and nothing touches them? So hard to get my head around this. Why do people lie on a daily basis? There are people that lie on a daily basis and nothing happens. And nothing happens because something is happening. They're dying. Yeah. What, you're, what you just need to think is like this. Why do they lie on a daily basis and I don't see anything happening? But don't ever be deceived because you can't see with your eye what's happening in the spiritual realm. You cannot do this on a regular basis without it destroying you. So if you're, if you're in a perpetual lying state, it will destroy you. And I, unfortunately, I have too many stories about that right now. I mean, I was lamenting over a guy that was in our church for a long time and he's in prison today because he was a liar. Yeah. And, and so we think, we watch people flourish and the Bible talks about that, watching people that are lying and doing things immoral and they appear on the outward to be flourishing and we're troubled by that, like how could this happen? But the God always pulls your chain, it always happens. Yeah. There will be a moment when it happens. There's that, that's the mercy part, that God gives people a lot of rope before he pulls the noose in tight, but he does always pull it in. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, Patricia says, do you think that could happen, and uh, she's obviously referring to Ananias and Sapphira, she says, uh, do you think that that could happen nowadays that we lied to the Lord and the Holy Spirit would kill us for lying? I thought Jesus paid it all. <laughs> Jesus did pay it all, but there's a reality of discipline. Again, I think it would behoove some of you to go in your Bible and read about church discipline in Matthew 18 and other places where, like uh, the text in 1 Corinthians that I, that I read about. If you read all the way from chapter five through chapter 11 uh, and about this guy and how he was restored in the church, it might help you to understand that there are times when you have to take drastic measures with people, but then God moves in with great mercy to recover their life and help them. Um, did Jesus pay it all? He did pay it all. But that doesn't mean though that, that you can go on sinning. The Bible's very clear that as a Christian, we stumble and we sin, but you don't make it a lifestyle. If sinning is still your lifestyle, you're probably not a Christian. Mm. 
That's what you need to think. So when somebody says, well, I was in your church all the time, but I have a problem, you know, I, and, and I'm now thinking of a particular person that had slept with everybody in their neighborhood and, and more people, and then said to me, you know, I still think I'm saved. I said, I don't. I don't think you've ever really known Jesus, or you wouldn't have been as immoral as you've been. Mm. You have destroyed your family, you destroyed the people around you, and you've listened to the people at work tell you this is okay, and you've come in and tried to justify it with me. When you've read your Bible, you know you were raised as a Christian in a Christian home. You know the Bible, and you know it's not okay. What you're doing is wrong, it breaks God's heart. You've destroyed other people's families, and ultimately you will destroy yourself. The good news about this person is they did come to repentance at some point and they bowed their heart down and they asked for forgiveness and they reconciled their life back to God. Praise God, yeah. So that, yeah, I mean, does, do, do people, I mean, I read you a story already that says that God still takes people's lives. Does it happen in such a dramatic fashion as Ananias and Sapphira? Usually not today. Does it still happen? I definitely think it does. There was a fella in our church years ago, again, another story, but. He was probably 78 years old, 80 years old, and he was on oxygen. This was one of those mind-boggling moments. I remember over in the old worship center in the MPV, he had been in our church for a long time serving, and his wife uh, was debilitated. She had, she had really, she, I think she had a stroke or something. We, they put her into a rest home. We used to go in the rest home and do communion with her and love on her. And when she was in the rest home, this guy got a girlfriend. And he starts having an affair with this girlfriend. So we confronted him and said, what are you doing? You know, like, you, you, have, a, you have a wife and you've been married to her for 45 or 55 years and she's really sick. What in the heck are you doing with this lady? Why would you do this? And I actually remember looking at him and saying, you're not a very wise person. You're on oxygen and really, how many more breasts do you think that you have on this side of heaven before you're gonna face your creator? I said that to him, and you know, he died the next week. Oh, wow. He was gone the next week. Yeah. I wasn't shocked that he was gone. I think other people might have been, but I wasn't shocked because I thought, man, you, got, you just don't have any fear of God in you at all. If your poor wife is in a rest home and you're out having a fling with some gal and you're on oxygen, you're pretty clueless. Yeah. But anyway, that's, yeah. Wow. Two, two questions that I think are similar. One is from um, Francine who's asking, I think, about the 1 Corinthians 5, the, the guy in 1 Corinthians 5, and then from KJV 1611, um, Francine says, so the guy sinned and would have died in his sin, would he have still entered the kingdom of God? Just to be clear, because of God's... So yes, uh, let me be really clear about that. Paul was really clear about that. Yes, he died in the flesh so he could sustain his spirit in the kingdom. Right. That's clearly what Paul is dealing with here. Yeah. He's saying... Eternity, see for us, we're so caught up in the moment that we look at this life and thinking to take somebody off of this planet is the most dire, worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. But if you really believe in eternity and you understand eternity is eternity, and this is just very temporary, which is what the Bible teaches over and over and over and over and over and over, that this life is very temporary and the next life is very eternal, that being taken into eternity is not a bad thing right. if you get taken in early. <laughs> At least you got in. That's yeah. a good thing. That's a blessing. And that's the picture in the story in Corinthians. Yeah. And similar to KJV 1611 says, were Ananias and Sapphira saved? 
if they lied, weren't their sins forgiven? He references 1 Corinthians 15.3. If God judges them at the time for lying, then 2 Corinthians 5.10 didn't apply for them. Well, that, again, very difficult call here with Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. We don't know their backstory. We don't know if they had actually, um, if they had actually been saved. The closest I could get to that is when Peter confronted Ananias and said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? So the question is, is was he lying to the Holy Spirit inside of himself because he was a believer and the Spirit had come in and sealed his heart into eternity? Or was he lying to the Spirit who was shepherding the church and the overseer of the church as the Holy Spirit was protecting the church at that moment and from the enemy intruding and trying to destroy what God was birthing um, that's a tough call. A lot of people would say Ananias and Sapphira were saved because they lied to the Holy Spirit and the reference that they would believe is that they were lying to the Spirit inside of them, not outside of them protecting the church. But that, we won't know the answer to that until we get into eternity. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Cheryl says, you said the blood of Jesus has been on the Jewish people for generations. Could you please explain that? Well, I think you just need to look at the pain that the Jewish people have been through. If you go through and you study the Old Testament, you realize that when the Jewish people hardened their heart against the Lord, that throughout all of scripture, and certainly Zechariah is a great text for this. We're gonna start studying Zechariah in a couple weeks, but um, God exiled them into Babylon for 70 years um, in order to reprove them and discipline them, that a whole generation of people would die off and then he would bring back another generation of people and try to work with them again in Israel. And so there's no question that God throughout time and history has reproved Israel and his people. If you look at them after the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, then there was this huge um, dysphoria, we would call it. There was a, there were, at 70 AD, the temple was torn down, it was destroyed and Jesus prophesied that that would happen when he wept over Jerusalem and said, you know, I, I longed for you to protect you. I longed for you to come underneath my covering. And he wept over them. If you haven't read that, you should go back in your Bibles and where it says that Jesus wept. And he wept over the people because he understood that they had chosen judgment instead of life. Mm -hmm. And so judgment came. They were dispersed throughout the earth. They've been dispersed throughout the earth during the time of that we call the time of the Gentiles. That is the season of us being added in. You can read all of that in Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, up into chapter 12 of Romans, of how sin entered in, but we were grafted in, and then the Jewish, the Jewish people will be invited back into the kingdom of God again. But there's no question that part of what happened here, they cursed themselves. They invited a curse onto their, onto their lineage and they did it openly and willfully. There's a difference between stumbling um, weakly, like a lot of us do. We lie over something we shouldn't lie about and the Lord convicts us and we repent and we're just weak and we say, gosh, I was weak. I wish I wouldn't have done that. We get addicted to something because we're weak. We have an immoral moment because we're weak. That's way different than being willful with God. And that's important that you understand even in the text here with Ananias and Sapphira. The difference between willful and weak in the Bible is very, very important. So when you're stumbling around weakly, struggling to walk with God, he deals with you on a whole different terms than when you are willful. 
Ananias and Sapphira, the guy in 1 Corinthians, were all willful. They knew what they were doing. Clearly it spelled out. You knew that you were doing the wrong thing. You knew you were deceiving. You knew that that it was a willful choice. And willful sin is dealt with differently in the Bible than weak sin. Over and over and over, that is the case. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And is there a time sometimes when you start out weak and you become willful? Yes. You can start out stumbling around and then your heart gets hard and you just say, forget it, I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do and I don't care what God thinks. Now you just move from weak into willful as your heart got hard. And hopefully that doesn't happen to you, but when you stumble around weak, you come run to the altar, run to the Father, and you repent, and he restores you and heals you. Yeah, yeah. Um, This one, I don't know if we have time for this. Brad says, can you comment on Gamaliel's statement and compare to the various non-Christian ideologies which seem to have endured so long? Okay, say it again. I'm trying to get the whole thing. So where Gamaliel said, where Gamaliel um, said, if if this isn't from God, it's not going to last anyway. Right. Um, but if it does, etc. Uh, can you comment on his statement and compare it to the various non-Christian ideologies which seem to have endured so long? Oh, okay. So that's yeah, that's a good question. Um, but this isn't when when he says that the, this was an ideology that was Christian, and he was referring to Christian people saying they're the Messiah. So you gotta understand that. Right. So these people, um, Judas and Thutis, both were identifying themselves as the chosen one of the Old Testament, the Messiah. They were declaring that. That's a whole different thing um, from, from a cult or a religion that is lost and in darkness. That's a whole different picture because those are not declaring that they are the Messiah. Right. These guys were declaring they were the Messiah and they were dispersed and came to nothing. The other, the contrast is in Gamaliel's opinion, if these guys are really from the Messiah, if Jesus was a Messiah, mm-hmm. he said that without saying it, but that's what he was identifying, was that if they are really from God and they are preaching Jesus as the risen Messiah, then there's nothing we can do to stop that. So there's a real, there's a difference between uh, um, a, a faith or a faith belief system that is not of God at all but is born out of darkness and oftentimes fed by the enemy. And something that's born out of the Old Testament that has got a picture of the risen Messiah, which is a copycat. Right. And that was what he was referencing there, so. Almost similar language where he says, at least in my translation, it says, you may find yourself fighting against God. And I think about Saul on the road to Damascus where he's been, he's kicking against the goats. Yeah, no, Saul's a great picture of that because he was fighting against God. He was killing the people in the church and and God took him down and he repented. Literally, yeah. Yeah, He (laughs) literally took him down. So that's a great picture, yeah. Um, Karamia says, Pastor Dan, it seems that the Western church, or at least the American church, values safety, comfort, and shielding our children from experiencing, experiencing the harshness of what many of our global brothers and sisters face for their Christianity. Can you speak to the fact that this, this seems to be absolutely contradictory to what we read is true Christianity. How can we change this in the Western church? Well, I think one of the things that we try to do at Water of Life is we try to get people out on the mission field. So yeah. I actually said tonight when we were doing our run through before service and we were looking at the video 
of the Cabrera slums, I started joking. I said, well, nobody's gonna wanna go to Kenya next year and work at Joy Springs School if we show them that video, yeah. <laughs> you know? But the truth is, is, is that Joy Springs School is a great place to do ministry. And when you get into the Cabrera slums, your perspective of life changes, and that's why we do outreach here at Water of Life so much, because it's a game changer. When you get in a third world country, you see people hungry and starving and desperate. It changes your view of your own comfort level and your life and your needs when you come home to America. You realize that your dollar will go so much further. That's why we do the Dollar Club, and I try to get people to understand how far their money can go to change these people. I mean, I got a call from India, I didn't, we didn't even put in the Indian money here that I, I need to talk about this. I think I'm gonna do one of our devotions maybe on Friday on this, of, of just how generous you've been. But in India, I got a call the other day from India and they said, could you um, buy food for these people? And if you buy, I don't think, I can't remember how much money it was. I think we gave them $20,000 though, but it fed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. It was just amazing the, the breadth of where our American dollar will go to change the world and the destiny of other people that we can't see. And so all of that to say, how do you deal with it? You deal with it right now when you're locked in in a pandemic situation and you're quarantined. Instead of complaining all the time, you start to realize how blessed you are to be alive and how blessed you are to have family, and how blessed you are to have internet, and a church, and ability to connect. And instead of focusing on the things that get you grouchy and in, in, in the flesh, you focus on the heart of God and the spirit, and you just begin to worship and give thanks for all that God has given to us, instead of what we have lost right now, which is some, certainly a lot, and, and for many of us, uh, loved ones, and, and, and all kinds of great tragedy. But, but focusing on the things that God has blessed you with is a huge game changer. And it helps us all to keep perspective and to understand that the, the faith that we know, we're, listen, we're not gonna be punished because we were born in America. That's not gonna happen. God understood when he allowed you to be here. You just should, should be grateful you're born in America. I mean, that's a blessing and we should all be just very thankful for that. That, that isn't something that God holds against any of us, but he does say this, listen, tell people that are, rich in this world to be generous to other people. So we do that all the time at Water of Life. We always talk to people about sacrificing and giving and helping other people. And I think as a whole, our church is amazingly generous and just tremendously strong in this area. And we're very, very, very grateful for that. But at the same time, we need to keep going down to CityLink. We need to keep being reminded of the poor and the needy, that they're just a step away from us. There's people all over in our community living in garages, living in their cars. When I hike, I never go hiking in the morning without driving by five or six cars where somebody's sleeping in their car on the trail mm -hmm. or on the road to a trailhead where I'm gonna go hiking. I see it every day and I th it always, I, I'm always impacted by it. I always think these people are sleeping in their cars not because they want to, because they have to. Yeah. They're sleeping in their cars because they don't have anywhere else to sleep right now. And, and those things ought to impact us. They ought to grab a hold of our heart and make us thankful, but also generous and, and want to help and reach and love and, and touch people. Yeah. So. And I think what, what we did today, even with the video, what she's talking about, shielding our children. Instead of shielding our children, we carefully expose our kids yeah. to Doing the kinds of things that you're talking about. Doing it well, and that's why right. I always try to say, take your kids to Mexico. Yeah. Take your kids to the orphanage. Take your kids on mission trips as soon as you can. 
help your children to see that their life is not the life of every other child. Right. Some of the greatest game-changing moments my kids ever had was when we cleaned out their closet, gave them their toys, and they cried, and I said, look at you got six dolls, take five of them and give them away, and keep the one that is the most important. You don't need 27 dolls. And if you teach your kids that they need 27 of anything, you're probably teaching them a bad lesson. I mean, you're teaching them not to be generous and not to share with other people. The Bible's very clear if you have a, a, you know, a coat and you need to give it away, you give your coat to your brother. Right. But the principle of hoarding and collecting and gathering more and more stuff is in direct conflict with what Jesus taught about loving and sharing with other people. And so if you find yourself gathering lots and lots of stuff to find comfort from it, you probably need to deal with that with Jesus and just say, look, Lord, I want to learn to be generous. And the only way you do that is what we used to do with our kids is clean out their closet, but not just give it to the poor, but have them hand it to a child. So I wanted it to be That's a firsthand powerful. experience where my kids were in an orphanage with a child who had no doll, was playing with a stick in the dirt on the ground, that was the only toy they had, and walk up and say, I want to give you my little baby doll. Yeah. I want to give you my truck. I want to give you my toy and watch the other child's response because that changes everything for your mm -hmm. kids. It changes their whole heart attitude. It creates a spirit of generosity. It creates a spirit of gratefulness. It helps them to understand that not every kid in the world has what they have. And it, it just changes everything. And what you're talking about is trying to build a biblical worldview and a biblical perspective of how God wants us to live and generosity does that. Yeah. When you help your kids to give their things away and you as parents give your things away. I've told so many stories about when we were going to go on a vacation and we really felt like we needed to pay the rent for some single mother or put tires on her car. and We didn't have the money to do both, so we would go to our kids and say, look, right now we're gonna go camping instead of this other thing we wanted to do because we really think we need to give this money to Jeannie or whoever, this lady, who doesn't have any tires on her car. And, we yeah. need to help put, she, she, has a, uh, she has four kids and no husband and we need to help her. And we taught our kids generosity by doing those kinds of things and talking about it in our home all the time so that that was part of their journey. We felt like our giving and our tithing and our sacrifice to the church and to the poor needed to go right through our kids because it was their home too. Yeah. So we always shared those things with our family. Yeah, that's powerful. I think that's yeah. so important. Well, I think we're out of time. Um, my apologies, we had a couple people who submitted questions. We'll try to um, cover them next week if we can, but um, I know this is a passage that really blows us up. There's between Ananias and Sapphira and some of this other stuff is just, um, it's pretty crazy. So we really appreciate you engaging. Continue to study, as Pastor Dan shared, so many good scriptures to, to read around these, to take a look and get the context of the whole scripture and understand these passages better. Um, let me uh, pray for us, mm -hmm. but I want to remind you, all of, Pastor Dan keeps referring to his, his, his daily video blogs, go to wallupdates.com, you can get all that information, get that every single day, it's such a great thing to see in your inbox, first thing in the morning when you wake up, um, and all of our Empowered Kids material, everything for Next Gen, uh, it's all available there. So, Lord, we thank you so much for your heart, yes. and for your heart for the church, we see it how carefully, how, how cautiously, how, um, how, how much you held on to that church in the beginning, how you safeguarded it and protected it and wanted it to be the church that you envisioned. 
And so, Father, we pray that we would be the church that you envision. Father, that we would be a church that you would be proud of. God, even in these times when we're, um, things are so out of normal, God, that we would look for ways to be your church, look for people that we can touch, people we can pray for, meets, uh, needs that we can meet even in our own communities. And Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the example of Peter and John and so many others. Um, we love you in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks so much for being with us. God bless you. We look forward to seeing you guys on the weekend.